you tuned in to the voice of the narrated Puritan podcast. This is a study of Christian experience and assurance, and today I'm going to do something that's going to be more biographical. Maybe for some that could be entertaining, but my own reading of Jonathan Edwards starting in 1984. More specifically, I want to talk about how the writings of Jonathan Edwards, especially in those two volumes, have helped me. Those two volumes, the one, The Banner of Truth, Published, the one that David Martin Lloyd-Jones said when he was searching through an old bookstore, he was down on his knees and he found what was called the Hickman edition of Jonathan Edwards' works, and he said that he read them and over and over and how influential they were to him. This is a discussion of how they have helped me. I knew about the writings of Jonathan Edwards very early on, at least at a distance. Historically, most people have heard about his famous sermon in Enfield, Connecticut, July 8, 1741, called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That sermon alone is very, very helpful even in studying anthropology. But I was first drawn to the experimental writings of Jonathan Edwards when I was reading a volume called The Systematic Theology of Augustine's Hopkins Strong. And I remember a statement in there because Strong's section on soteriology was very, very instrumental to me. This is way back in 1981 before I had many books. I only overheard of what a systematic theology was because I had a chaplain in the Air Force in Mountain Home, Idaho, who introduced the subject to some of the people that were coming to a singles group. It never met with a very big fanfare that we were going to, quote, study systematic theology. But I was new. I was a babe in Christ, and I pondered these things, and I said, well, if it's good enough for him, it's good enough for me. So eventually, my second work on systematic theology was by Strong. And I remember a quote in there where he's talking about a treatise on the religious affections. In one of the early editions of Jonathan Edwards in four volumes, the biography in one of those early sets of four volumes was Alexander Allen. And He said that if you could read a treatise on the religious affections and still believe in your conversion, you may well have the highest assurance of the reality of your faith. Well, I was very introspective, and I didn't get assurance right away. And so for a long time, about three years, I avoided reading Jonathan Edwards. But it was about 1984, and I finally picked up that book and probably would have gotten more out of it if I didn't have that kind of an introduction to that book. But at the time, I was stationed down in Mobile, Alabama, in the United States Coast Guard, and I had orders to go to Governor's Island in New York City. If you listen to my biography, it's a little bit more full, but I found out about Trinity Baptist Church in Montville, New Jersey, and a number of us carpooled from New York City. And the first thing that I really took notice of, besides the power of the preacher, was the excellent book store that they had at Trinity Book Service. And As they do now, so they did then, Banner of Truth had published three of the revival volumes of Jonathan Edwards into a single volume. So it was the first time I had ever read his narrative of many surprising conversions in Northampton and distinguishing marks of a work of the Spirit of God. And ironically, the one that I have over the years benefited from most for some of the wisdom that is in it that I'll probably get into in a few minutes is thoughts on the present revival of religion. In a narrative of surprising conversions as I was reading part two on the manner of their conversions being various, this enlightened me to what awakening is prior to conversion. 
And since you don't hear a lot about any extensive awakening before conversion in our day, it was very helpful for what I was going through. I didn't have an easy time of it. So let me give you a taste of what Jonathan Edwards says here and how this was helpful to me. Jonathan Edwards says, quote, These spiritual awakenings, when they have first seized on persons, have had two effects. One was that they have brought them immediately to quit their sinful practices and the looser sort have been brought to forsake and dread their former vices and extravagances. And once the Spirit of God began to be so wonderfully poured out in a general way through the town, people had soon done with their old quarrelings, backbitings, intermeddlings with other men's matters. There's a great variety. It's to the degree of fear and trouble that persons are exercised with before they attain any comfortable evidences of pardon and acceptance with God. Some are from the beginning carried on with abundantly more encouragement and hope than others. Some have had ten times less trouble of mind than others in whom yet the end or issue seems to be the same. Some have had such a sense of the displeasure of God and the great danger they were in of damnation that they could not sleep at nights, and many have said that when they have laid down, the thoughts of sleeping in such a condition have been frightful to them. They have scarcely been free from terror while asleep, and they have awakened with fear, heaviness, and distress still abiding on their spirits. It has been very common that the deep and fixed concern on persons' minds has had a painful influence on their bodies, and given disturbance to animal nature. The awful apprehensions persons have had of their misery have for the most part been increasing the nearer they have approached to deliverance, though they often pass through many changes and alterations in the frame and circumstances of their minds. Sometimes they think themselves wholly senseless and fear that God has left them, and that they are given up to judicial hardness. Yet, they appear very deeply exercised about that fear and are in great earnest to obtain convictions again. Together with those fears, and that exercise of mind which is rational and which they have just ground for, they have suffered many needless distresses of thought, in which Satan probably has had a great hand to entangle them and block up their way. Sometimes the distemper of melancholy has been evidently mixed, of which when it happens, the tempter seems to take great advantage and puts an unhappy bar or way of any good effect. One knows not how to deal with such persons. They turn everything that is said to them the wrong way, and most to their own disadvantage. There is nothing that the devil seems to make so great a handle of as a melancholy humor, unless it be the real corruption of the heart. Many times, persons who are under these awakenings were concerned because they thought they were not spiritually awakened, but miserable, hard-hearted, senseless, sottish creatures still, and sleeping upon the brink of hell. The sense of the need they have to be awakened, and of their own comparative hardness, grows upon them with their awakening, so that they seem to themselves to be very senseless, when indeed most sensible. There have been some examples of persons who have had a great sense of their danger and misery as their natures could well subsist under, so that a little more would probably have destroyed them, and yet, they have expressed themselves much amazed at their own insensibility and sottishness at such an extraordinary time. Well, so, this is a description. How about the pastoral council? And this is where Edwards excelled. He had an opportunity to talk to so many people. He said as many as 300 possibly came to him for counsel during those days. And in the judgment of charity, originally thought it was possible that as many as 300 
of the members of his own congregation had been converted. But as the revival went on in the year 1742, and then began to subside, and Edward sees that some of those who began well were only stony ground hearers, he really analyzed what was the nature of their apostasy and what we could have done different as pastors to have prevented this. But let me read this paragraph here before we get to that. He says, quote, Whatever minister or pastor has a lectication to deal with souls and a flock, under such circumstances as this was in the last year, I cannot but think he will soon find himself under a necessity greatly to insist upon it with them that God is under no manner of obligation to show mercy to any natural man whose heart is not turned to God, and that a man can challenge nothing either in absolute justice or by free promise from anything he does before he has believed on Jesus Christ, or has true repentance begun in him. It appears to me that if I had taught those who came to me under trouble any other doctrine, I should have taken a most direct course utterly to undo them. Now, this isn't the type of counsel you get in our day. First of all, just the awakening alone would be enough for a pastor to say that God has converted this person, did all awakenings, all alarms, all conviction of sin, always issues in conversion, the new birth, and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. But the old divines used to plow deeper. They know, as William Perkins says in a book called Cases of Conscience, that a reprobate may go thus far and still not be saved. But as I was saying, since a number of people had fallen away, and Edwards, with his analytical ability to look this over and decide what could I have done differently or what we could have done differently. And some of the light of this is and in a letter to the Reverend James Robe about the revival at Kilsyth, Scotland, and what was going on in America. And he said to James Robe, you have heard great things from New England of late, which I do not doubt have refreshed and rejoice your hearts. Now James Robes, William McCulloch, they were in Scotland and their experience in revival there under George Whitfield. But he says, But now we have not such joyful news to send to you. The clouds have lately thickened, and our hemisphere is now much darkened with them. There is a great decay of the work of God amongst us, especially as to the awakening and converting influence of the Spirit of God. And the prejudices there are in a great part of the country are riveted and inveterate. The people are divided into two parties, those that favor the work and those that are against it, people that are against it. For example, Charles Chauncey, a minister in Boston who eventually became a Unitarian, but was a great opponent of Jonathan Edwards and what was called revival. And Edwards says the distinction has long been growing more and more visible and the distance greater till there is at length raised a wall between them up to heaven so that one party is very much out of the reach of all the influence of the other. People become incorrigible. They become fixed. They become determined in their conclusions, as Chauncey and a number were. And there is a division, and the one side can't influence the other, Owen is saying. This is very much owing to imprudent management and the friends of the work, and a corrupt mixture which Satan has found means to introduce and our manifold sinful errors by which we have grieved and quenched the Spirit of God. It can scarcely be conceived to what consequence it is 
to the continuance and propagation of a revival of religion, did the utmost care be used to prevent error and disorder among those that appear to be the subjects of such a work, and also that all imaginable care be taken by pastors in conducting souls under the work, and particularly that there be the greatest caution used in comforting and establishing persons as there being safe and past the danger of hell. Many among us have been ready to think that all high raptures are divine, but experience plainly shows that it is not the degree of rapture and ecstasy, although it should be to the third heavens in their case, but the nature and kind that must determine us in their favor. It would have been better for us if all ministers here had taken care diligently to distinguish such joys and raised affections as were attended with deep humiliation, brokenness of heart, poverty of spirit, mourning for sin, solemnity of spirit, a trembling reverence towards God, tenderness of spirit, self-jealousy and fear, and great engagingness of heart after holiness of life, and a readiness to esteem others better than themselves, and that sort of humility that is not a noisy, showy humility, but rather to this, which disposes to walk softly, and to speak tremblingly, and if we had encouraged no discoveries or joys but such as manifestly wrought this way, it would have been well for us. And I'm persuaded we shall generally be sensible before long that we run too fast. We endeavor by our positive determinations to banish all fears of damnation. He's talking about an unawakened conscience prior to conversion a conscience awakened under the conviction of sin. He says we should not banish all fears or determine what case they are in if they've recently been converted. From the minds of men, though they may be true saints, they are not such as are eminently humble and mortified in what the apostle calls rooted and grounded in love, Ephesians 3.17. It seems to be running before the Spirit of God. God by His Spirit does not give assurance any other way than it by advancing the things in the soul. He does not wholly cast out fear, the legal principle, but by His advancing and filling the soul full of love, the evangelical principle. When love is low in the true saints, they need the fear of hell to deter them from sin and engage them to exactness in their walk and to stir them up to seek heaven. But when love is high and the soul full of it, we don't need to fear. Later on in a letter to James Robe, Jonathan Edwards writes, it is probable that one reason why God has allowed us to err in this way is to teach us wisdom by the experience of the ill consequence of our errors. End quote. That letter was written in, from Northampton, May 12, 1743. But I want to move now to thoughts on the present revival of religion before I talk about those individual sermons that are recorded by Jonathan Edwards in his collected sermons in the Hickman edition. And on top of that, if you're getting the works of Jonathan Edwards, you certainly want his work called Charity and Its Fruits, which is not in the Hickman edition of his works, a Banner of Truth edition, those two big volumes of Jonathan Edwards' works. In part three of the Thoughts on the Present Revival of Religion, the title is Showing in Many Instances Wherein the Subjects or Zealous Promoters of This Work Have Been Injuriously Blamed. They were blaming them and saying that they haven't been prudent. To preface this, do you remember in Pilgrim's Progress when Christian had that burden on his back and he meets evangelists, and evangelist gives him a message that says, flee from the wrath to come? 
Why didn't he comfort him? He seemed to add to his duress. And Jonathan Edwards says, another thing that some ministers have been greatly blamed for, and I think unjustly, is speaking terror to them who are already under great terrors. The message read, flee from the wrath to come, and Christian was already greatly burdened. Why add to the burden? And Edward says, speaking terror to them who are already under great terrors instead of comforting them. Indeed, if pastors in such a case go about to terrify persons with that which is not true, or frightening them by representing their case worse than it is, or in any respect otherwise than it is, the pastors are to be condemned. But if they terrify them only by still holding forth more light to them, more gospel light to their conscience, but at first in a convicting way, and giving them to understand more of the truth of their case, they are altogether to be justified. When consciences are greatly awakened by the Spirit of God, it is but light imparted, enabling men to see their case in some measure as it is, and if more light be let in, it will terrify them still more. But ministers are not therefore to be blamed that they endeavor to hold forth more light to the conscience, and do not rather alleviate the pain they are under by intercepting and obstructing the light that shines already. Then he says, quote, To blame a minister for thus declaring the truth to those who are under awakenings, and not immediately administering comfort to them, is like blaming a surgeon, because when he has begun to thrust in his lance, in which he has already put his patient to great pain, and he shrinks and cries out with anguish, he is so cruel that he will not stay his hand, but goes on to thrust it in further, till he comes to the core of the wound. Such a compassionate physician, who as soon as his patient began to flinch, should withdraw his hand and go about immediately to apply a plaster, or we would say a band-aid, to skin over the wound, and leave the core untouched, would heal the hurt slightly, crying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Indeed, something besides tears to be preached to them whose consciences are awakened. They are to be told that there is a Savior provided who is excellent and glorious, who has shed his precious blood for sinners, and is every way sufficient to save them, who stands ready to receive them, if they will hardly embrace him, for this is also the truth, as well as that they are now in an infinitely dreadful condition. This is the word of God. Sinners at the same time that they are told how miserable their case is should be earnestly invited to come and accept of a Savior and yield their hearts to him with all the winning and encouraging arguments that the gospel affords. But this is to induce them to escape from the misery of their condition, not to make them think their present condition to be less miserable than it is, or to abate their uneasiness and distress while they are in it. That would be the way to quiet and fasten them there, and not to excite them to flee from it. End quote. And the temptation in our day is to say, this is really kind of extreme. Seems to be probing the wound too deeply. But remember that he is writing these things after he has seen that many of those who made a profession had fallen away. They weren't properly, as Richard Sibb says in the bruised reed, bruised reeds. And therefore, since they are not broken, they become apostates afterward. Now, moving on to part four, which I believe of all of the stuff that is pastoral counsel in this book, this is not only 
the best part of the book. It's probably equal to or unequaled in some of the counsel it gives from a pastor the young pastor should heed. Showing what things are to be corrected or avoided in promoting its work or in our behavior under it. So let me read just this part of section one. One cause of errors attending a great revival of religion is undiscerned spiritual pride. The first and the worst cause of errors that prevail in such a state of things is spiritual pride. This is the main door by which the devil comes into the hearts of those who are zealous for the advancement of religion. It is the chief inlet of smoke from the bottomless pit to darken the mind and mislead the judgment. This is the main handle by which the devil is hold of religious persons and the chief source of all the mischief that he introduces to clog and hinder a work of God. This cause of error is the mainspring, or at least the main support of all the rest. Till this disease is cured, medicines are in vain, applied to heal other diseases. It is by this, undiscerned spiritual pride, that the mind defends itself in other errors, and guards itself against light, by which it might be corrected and reclaimed. The spiritually proud man is full of light already. He does not need instruction, and is ready to despise the offer of it. But if this disease be healed, other things are easily rectified. This is a pretty lengthy part of this, but probably one of the best things written on undiscerned spiritual pride in the English language. But it's section two of this part a thoughts on the present or for a Bible of religion that I received a great deal of light from and have quoted senses. Another cause of the errors in conduct attending a religious revival is the adoption of wrong principles. One erroneous principle, which has scarce any proved more mischievous to the present glorious work of God, is a notion that it is God's manner in these days to guide his saints, at least some that are more imminent by inspiration or immediate revelation in our day they would claim that they received a word of prophecy they suppose god makes known to them what shall come to pass hereafter or what it is his will that they should do by impressions made upon their minds either with or without text of scripture in which something is made known to them that is not taught in the scripture by such a notion, the devil has a great door open for him, and if once this opinion should come to be fully yielded to and established in the church of God, Satan would have opportunity thereby to set up himself as a guide and oracle of God's people, and have his word regarded as their infallible rule, and so to lead them where he would, and to introduce what he pleased, and soon to bring the Bible into neglect and contempt. Late experience in some instances has shown that the tendency of this notion is to cause persons to esteem the Bible, is in a great measure useless. He's saying they, quote, receive a word of prophecy. They believe that God is showing to them what shall come to pass, either with or without texts of scriptures impressed upon their minds. But he says this error will defend and support other errors. As long as a person has a notion that he is guided by immediate direction from heaven, it makes him incorrigible and impregnable in all of his misconduct. For what signifies it for poor blind worms, such as ourselves, of the dust to go to argue with a man and endeavor to convince him and correct him that is guided by the immediate counsels and commands of the great Jehovah? This great work of God has been exceedingly hindered by this error. 
Until we have quite taken this handle out of the devil's hands, the work of God will never go on without great clogs and hindrances. Satan will always have a vast advantage in his hands against it. And as he has improved it up until now, so he will do so still. And it is evident that the devil knows a vast advantage he has by it that makes him exceeding loath to let go of his hold, end quote. And then he says, quote, Another erroneous principle that some have embraced and which has been a source of many errors in their conduct is that persons ought always to do whatever the Spirit of God, though but indirectly, inclines them to. Indeed, the Spirit of God is in itself infinitely perfect. In all his immediate acting, simply considered are perfect, and there can be nothing wrong in them. And therefore, all that the Spirit of God inclines us to directly and immediately without the intervention of any other cause that shall pervert and misimprove what is from him ought to be done. But there may be many things, dispositions to do, which may indirectly be from the Spirit of God that we ought not to do. The disposition in general may be good and from the Spirit of God, but the particular determination of that disposition is to particular actions, objects, and circumstances may be from the intervention or interposition of some infirmity, blindness, and advertence, deceit, or corruption of ours, so that although the disposition in general ought to be allowed and promoted, and all those actings of it that are simply from God's Spirit, yet that particular ill direction or determination of that disposition which is from some other cause ought not to be followed, end quote. And then Jonathan Edwards gives this example, quote, is for instance, the Spirit of God may cause a person to have a dear love to another, and so great a desire of and delight in his comfort, ease, and pleasure. This disposition in general is good, and ought to be followed, but yet, through the intervention of indiscretion and some other bad cause, it may be ill-directed, and have a bad determination as to particular acts, and a person indirectly through that real love he has to his neighbor may kill him with kindness, he may do that out of sincere goodwill to him, which may tend to ruin him. A good disposition may, through some inadvertence or delusion, strongly incline a person to that which, if he saw all things as they are, would be most contrary to that disposition. The true loyalty of a general and his zeal for the honor of his prince may exceedingly animate him in a time of war, but this good disposition, through indiscretion a mistake, may push him forward to those things that give the enemy great advantage, and may expose him and his army to ruin, and may tend to the ruin of his master's interest, end quote. And the next quote is something I need at this particular time myself, quote, I do not doubt, but that it is possible for a pastor to have by the Spirit of God such a sense of the importance of eternal things, and of the misery of mankind, so many of whom are exposed to eternal destruction, together with such a love to souls that he might find in himself a disposition to spend all his time day and night in warning, exhorting, and calling on men, and so that he must be obliged as a word to do violence to himself ever to refrain, so as to give himself any opportunity to eat, drink, or sleep. And so I believe there may be a disposition in a like manner indirectly excited in laypersons through the intervention of their infirmity to do what only belongs to ministers, yea, to do those things that would not become either ministers or people. Through the influence of the Spirit of God, together with lack of discretion and some remaining corruption, women and children might feel themselves inclined to break forth aloud to great congregations 
warning and exhorting the whole multitude. And to scream in the streets, or to leave their families, and go from house to house, earnestly exhorting others, but yet it would by no means follow that it was their duty to do these things, or that they would not have a tendency to do ten times as much hurt as good, end quote. This reminds me of the Kentucky Revival of 1800, down in Logan County, about 90 miles from where I am sitting, and the Presbyterians, under James McGrady, originally from North Carolina, knew that it was going to do more harm than good to not be cautious, to be overzealous. And the Methodist ministers, one or two of them, when these people were under awakening and crying out in the fields, and there were approximately 20,000 people that had come to this area, some out of a real concern for the revival, others out of curiosity, as there wasn't a lot of entertainment in Kentucky in 1800. But the Methodist ministers went through the camp, and they just started yelling at the top of their lungs about people's need to fear the wrath of God, turn from the wrath of God, and repent. However, it works on the what they used to call the animal passions, and it stirs up a fear, but not true conviction of sin. And this is the type of thing that Jonathan Edwards is talking about in discreet zeal. You fear the wrath of God. You fear it coming upon your neighbor. You know that these things are very serious, but you're not prudent in how you get this message out. And you do more harm than good because you're not harmless as a dove or wise as a serpent. Jonathan Edwards says, another error arising from an erroneous principle is a wrong notion that they have an attestation of divine providence to persons or things. We go too far when we look upon the success that God gives to some persons in making them the instruments of doing much good as a testimony of God's approval of those persons and all the courses they take. God blesses them in an endeavor, in a certain ministry, and we suppose that he's going to do so in all of their undertakings and in all of their ministries, and spiritual pride is apt to rise its head. And the indiscreet zeal or the spiritual pride arising from the fact that you've been used of God makes a person less cautious, and the devil is able to take advantage of that. He says, It has been a main argument to defend the conduct of some ministers who have been blamed as imprudent and irregular, that God has blessed them and given them great success, and that However men charge them as guilty of wrong things, yet God is with them, and then who could be against them? And probably some of those ministers themselves by this very means have had their ears stopped against all that has been said to convince them of their misconduct. But there are innumerable ways by which persons may be misled in forming a judgment of the mind and will of God from the events of providence. If a person's success be a reward of something in him that God approves, yet it is no argument that he approves of everything in him, end quote. But I believe it's the last counsel that Jonathan Edwards gives in this section of this work that is so profound, which I will read now. The devil, in driving things to these extremes, besides the present hindrance of the work of God has, I believe, had in view a twofold mischief in the issue of things, one with respect to those that are cold in religion, to carry things to such an extreme in order that people in general, having their eyes opened by the great excess, might be tempted entirely to reject the whole work, as being all nothing but delusion and distraction, and another with respect to those of God's children who have been very warm and zealous out of the way, to sink them down in unbelief and darkness, 
The time is coming, I do not doubt, when a greater part of them will be convinced of their errors, and then probably the devil will take advantage to lead them into a dreadful wilderness, to puzzle and confound them about their own experiences, and the experiences of others, and to make them to doubt of many things that they ought not, and even attempt them with atheistical thoughts. I do not know but we shall be in danger after our eyes are fully open to see our heirs, to go to contrary extremes. The devil has driven the pendulum far beyond its proper point of rest, and when he has carried it to the utmost length that he can, and it begins by its own weight to swing back, he probably will set in and drive it with the utmost fury the other way, and so give us no rest, and a possible prevent our settling in a proper medium. What a poor, blind, weak, and miserable creature is man at its best estate. We are like poor, helpless sheep. The devil is too subtle for us. What is our strength? What is our wisdom? How ready are we to go astray? How easily are we drawn aside into innumerable snares? While in the meantime we are bold and confident and do not doubt but that we were right and safe. We are fully sheep in the midst of subtle serpents and cruel wolves and do not know it. Oh, how unfit are we to be left to ourselves, and how much we stand in need of the wisdom, the power, the condescension, patience, forgiveness, and gentleness of our good shepherd, in quote. Now, other things you certainly would want to read in the collected works of Jonathan Edwards is his observations and his comments on the life and diary of David Brainerd. There is so much wisdom there. I'm not going to go into it in some depths because I've recently narrated some of that and it is on the site on Sermon Audio, the narrated Puritan. Jonathan Edwards' observations upon David Brainerd's life and his diary. Now, since my time is limited and it would be helpful to go through a number of these sermons and talk about their specific usefulness to some of us that are studying Christian experience, the one I want to draw your attention to in the short time that remains is a sermon called Men Naturally Are God's Enemies based upon Romans 5 verse 10, for if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. I don't think if there is a fault I have observed in modern evangelicalism, pastors really believe in the innate enmity of the heart to God by nature and what an amazing work of the Holy Spirit it is to bring that person from hatred and hostility to God, to be a humble supplicant at the feet of our Lord Jesus Christ. As I last read this sermon, it was so enlightening because in our day, there is such an inveterate hostility against Christianity. True it is, Revelation 12.12, 12, that the devil has come down to you with great wrath, for he knows that he has a short time. But it isn't just a rage of the devil. It's a rage that by nature is in men's hearts. And he says in the sermon, the degree of men's natural enmity to God, they have no love to God. Their enmity, the natural man, person not born again, is mere enmity without any mixture of love. A natural man is wholly destitute of any principle of love to God and therefore never had the least exercise of this love. Some natural men have better tempers than others and some are better educated than others. And some live a great deal more soberly than others, but one has no more love to God than another, for none have the least spark of it in his heart. The heart of a natural man is as destitute of love to God as a dead, stiff, cold corpse is of vital heat. 
Every faculty and principle of action is wholly under the dominion of the enmity against God. The nature of man is wholly infected with this enmity against God. He is tainted with it throughout, in all of his faculties and principles, and not only so, but every faculty is entirely and perfectly subdued under it, and enslaved to it. This enmity against God has the absolute possession of the man. The Apostle Paul, speaking of what he was, naturally says, I am carnal, sold under sin. The understanding is under the reigning power of this enmity against God, so that it is entirely darkened and blinded with regard to the glory and excellency of God. The will is wholly under the reigning power of it. All the affections are governed by enmity against God. There is not one affection, nor one desire, that a natural man has, or that he has ever stood up to act from, but what contains in it enmity against God. The natural man is as full of enmity against God as any viper or any venomous beast is full of poison. The power of the enmity of natural men against God is so great that it is insuperable, unconquerable, by any finite power. It has too great and strong a possession of the heart to be overcome by any created power. Indeed, a natural man never sincerely strives to root out his enmity against God. His endeavors are hypocritical. He delights in his enmity and chooses it. Neither are others able to do it. Though they sincerely and to their utmost endeavor to overcome this enmity. If godly friends and neighbors labor to persuade them to cast away their enmity and become friends to God, they cannot persuade them to it. Though ministers use never so many arguments and entreaties and set forth the loveliness of God, tell them of the goodness of God to them, hold forth God's own gracious invitations and entreat them never so earnestly to cast off their opposition and be reconciled. Yet, they cannot overcome it. Still, they will be as bad enemies to God as ever they were. The tongue of men or of angels cannot persuade them to relinquish their opposition to God. They are mortal enemies to God. They have that enmity in their hearts that strikes at the life of God. A man may be no friend to another and may have an ill spirit towards him and yet not be his mortal enemy. His enmity will be satisfied with something short of the death of the person. But it is not so with natural men with respect to God. They are mortal enemies. Their imbecility is no argument that this is not the tendency of the principle. Quote, another thing, let me close with this, that Jonathan Edwards is so helpful in pointing out is that there are Mercenary motives for coming to Christ. Mercenary. Selfish. A person wants to escape hell. That's why he wants a savior as an insurance policy. He doesn't willingly want to come to Christ by nature. And this is what he says to the people in his congregation under awakening. This is what he says in the Sermon of Justice of God and the Damnation of Sinners. Quote, I'm sensible that by this time many persons are ready to object. If all should speak what they now think, we should hear a murmuring all over the meeting house, and one another would say, can't see how this can be that I'm not willing that Christ should be my Savior, when I would give all the world that he was my Savior. How is it possible that I should not be willing to have Christ for my Savior, when this is what I am seeking after and praying for and striving for? It's for my life. Here, therefore, I would endeavor to convince you that you are under a gross, mistakenness manner that you may see the weak grounds of your mistake, consider there is a great deal of difference between a willingness not to be damned and a being willing to receive Christ for your Savior. You have the former. 
There is no doubt of that. Nobody supposes that you love misery so as to choose an eternity of it. And so doubtless you are willing to be saved from eternal misery, but that is a very different thing from being willing to come to Christ. Persons very commonly mistake the one for the other, but they are two different things. You may love the deliverance, but hate the deliverer. You tell of a willingness, but do not consider what is the object of that willingness. It does not respect Christ. The way of salvation by him is not at all the object of it, but is wholly terminated on your escape from misery. The inclination of your will goes no further than self. It never reaches Christ. You are willing not to be miserable. That is, you love yourself. And there your will and choice terminate, and it is but a vain pretense and delusion to say or think that you are willing to accept of Christ. End quote. Well, this is just a handful of the things that over the years I've read in the works of Jonathan Edwards that have been helpful for me, of course, to do this in any kind of a complete way would require a number of podcasts. But as there are other classes to come, and Edwards is going to be so useful in them as well, we will look at some of those as we go along. Thank you for tuning in to the Voice of the Narrated Puritan podcast.